Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Welcome again uh, to Advent. We're so glad that y'all are, are here with us this evening. Uh, for those of y'all who I haven't met, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor uh, here at Advent, and um, it's a, a joy to be gathered together. Uh, I'm from Houston, and when I was in high school, uh, there was an area of River Oaks that was made famous by a comedian named Lewis Black. Um, on the corner of Shepherd and West Gray, there was an anomaly that made Lewis Black say that he had finally reached the end of the universe. He said he was coming out of the comedy club, um, on, and on the end of the street, he ran into a Starbucks. And then he looked across the street, and he saw another Starbucks. There was a Starbucks across the street from another Starbucks, and he said that was the end of the universe. Um, little did he know that there was actually a third Starbucks a quarter of a mile down the street inside of either a Barnes & Noble or Borders or something along those lines. Um, in light of the fact that we are a new church plant in a city that, that has a lot more churches than other areas of, of the world, um, it can feel like we're putting a, a new church next to a church that's across the street from another church, right? And finally, now in the Christian world, we have reached the end of the universe. Um, so why Advent? Why a new church? Why a new church plant? Um, it seems like there's a lot of other churches that are struggling in a post-COVID context, right? Isn't this just more competition, or um, shouldn't we just fill all of the current and existing churches before we begin a new one? Well, um, these are great questions, and I don't want to gloss over them. Uh, I can't answer that all this evening. It requires a lot of nuance and thought, but I would love to chat more. But in a broad brush, if I could answer that question um, uh, with, with, with little nuance, it would be this, that we believe that planting Advent is out of obedience to the Great Commission. Um, each of the four Gospels uh, ends with a commissioning event where Jesus tells the disciples, go, now do likewise, right? He sends them out uh, into the world, and therefore he sends his, his, uh, us out as well. Most of us are familiar with Matthew 28 uh, and, and that commissioning event. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. But part of the conviction for who Advent is comes from a lesser-known uh, commissioning event in John's Gospel, uh, John chapter 20, verses, uh, verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So for the first Sunday uh, at Advent, I want, I, want for us, um, I want for us to look more at this key commissioning verse. And what does it mean about who we are? Uh, and so as we read this passage together uh, this evening, I want us to keep that in mind, that question in mind. Who is Advent in light of what it is that we're reading? Um, I'm going to invite us to stand for the reading of the gospel. Uh, at Advent, we'd like to do so not because the gospels are to be more revered than the other aspects of God's word, but because we believe the gospel is the fulfillment of all of God's word. And so uh, let's, uh, let's read this word of God uh, together. John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... 
Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the gospel of the Lord. Would you all please be seated and join me in prayer. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you do speak to us, that you give us your word. And Lord, as we, as we think about this this evening, I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hands and feet to do your will. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our outline for what we're going to be talking about from this passage um, is, is specifically this. We want to look at how this passage informs our mission, how it informs our peace, and how it informs our help. Uh, our mission, our peace, and our help. Um, first, our, our mission. Uh, I would imagine that most of y'all are, are as aware as I am and have noticed that a lot of slogans uh, and mission statements are unbelievably aspirational. Um, I, I was a big fan of the University of Texas sl- slogan, you know, what starts here changes the world in, in the Walter Cronkite voice. Um, or Instagram has to capture and share the world's moments. Or Microsoft is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. Um, like the bigger the mission statement or, or the bigger the supposed impact of the, of the organization, the better. Right? So in these statements, there's this tendency to make it sound like uh, the world was a terrible place until the University of Texas showed up. Am I right, Aggies? No, I'm not one. I'm not an Aggie. But um, I know there's a few of you. Right? Or, or maybe we even think that none of the world's moments were really ever shared until Instagram showed up. Right? And churches and ministries are not immune from this type of sloganism and this type of hype. Right? Even if they don't say it explicitly, we can often think, well, we're finally here to do what churches were always intended to do. Or, you know, now that Advent is here, God, you, you can go ahead and be at work because now we're here. I, we, even if we don't explicitly say those things, we can believe those things. And there's a lot of problems with that type of thinking. Well, first, it's triumphalistic, right? Where we can believe that we are the ones that are ushering in God's kingdom, not him and not by his power. Or that God, uh, it can be way too narrow of a view of who God is and what he's been doing. That somehow we believe that maybe he hadn't been at work prior to our getting here. That there hadn't been ministries and churches uh, at work in this area bringing the good news long before we arrived. So we want to constantly remember that while God gives us a mission, God does not tell us that we are the ones who have to fulfill it all on our own. That we are not God himself. We do not usher in the kingdom of God by ourselves. But with that said, he still graciously invites us to do uh, to, to, to this work this morning or this evening. Um, so how do we think about ourselves as a church with a mission? Well, Jesus says to his disciples, and by extension, he says to you and to me and all followers of Christ, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus here is both the motivation and he is the model of our ministry. 
as the motivation, what do I mean? That can sound a little new agey. That can sound a little, little self-helpy, if that's a phrase. Um, well, what I mean is this. John later writes a letter. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, he says, We love because he first loved us. Jesus didn't say in John chapter 20, he didn't say, you know, I'm sending you out to love other people, and if you do that well enough, then you will earn my favor, then you will earn my love. No, he doesn't say that at all. The order matters significantly here. Because Jesus was sent by the Father, and in light of what Jesus has done, now we too are sent. God didn't wait until we got our act together before he sent Jesus to become a man. He didn't demand that we prove our worthiness. No. Rather, it's because we couldn't get our act together. It's because this world was mired in sin and in death that he came, that he was determined to act. So the order matters. Right? God is always the first mover. God is the initiator. God is the pursuer. So the Father sent the Son into the world to purchase back from sin and from death all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. God doesn't say, you know, get out there and prove your devotion to me. No, he loves us first by sending Jesus to break the curse of sin and death. And then, as we encounter that grace, then we are sent. His grace is our motivation. He directs us. But the reason for that direction is his grace and his kindness. See, that's the motivation. Um, if you get to know me a little bit, and my wife, I, I watch a lot of documentaries. It's a little bit of a joke uh, around the house. We just finished watching a documentary on, um, on a Mormon sect uh, called the FLDS, um, the, uh, the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. Um, and and uh, what was so fascinating as we watched it again and again, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, set-apart sect where, you know, you almost have to dress like you're uh, in Laura Ingalls Wilder book or something along those lines and live a very strict, uh, strict moral code. Um, they are overly concerned and desperately anxious that God will not welcome them into the afterlife. Because, see, in their way of thinking, you have to earn it. And at no point in this entire documentary did any of them ever feel comfortable enough that they had earned it on their own. Right? We never feel like we earned it. We, as we, much as we try to prove our worthiness over and over and over again, maybe not quite that extreme, we never feel like we are worthy enough. Jesus says that his yoke... Right? The yoke is the equipment that you put on top of oxen uh, to plow a, a, a field. He says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, meaning he's not laced this upon you. He does not put you underneath his authority uh, to compel you or to pound you into submission, but rather that, that yoke upon you is his grace. It's his forgiveness to you, and that is what drives us and compels us. What about the model? So not only is Jesus uh, uh, our motivation, he is also our model for ministry. So while we're not Jesus, it's foolish to first look at other examples of ministry outside of who, who Jesus is. Right? As he was sent, so should we be sent in the same means. And while we do not have his power in and of ourselves, we can apply his ministry means, particularly in two very significant ways. Um, 
words and, and deeds, that being the first. Um, I'm, now, bear with me. I'm going to stop preaching for a second. I'm going to start teaching. Uh, this will be a little bit of a philosophy lesson. We live in a post-enlightenment world, and the church has struggled in a post-enlightenment world because of a particular existential crisis of a Christian philosopher named Rene Descartes. See, Rene Descartes had a, a, a crisis where he didn't know if he existed. He didn't know if anything in the world existed. And so he asked uh, a, a very important question, like, how do I know if anything is real? What, uh, what is uh, the genuine item that I can point to in the world that says any of this is real? Well, he finally realized that it was in his own mind. And he comes up with a very pithy, proverbial statement that we're all familiar with. I think... Therefore, I am, which is another way of saying, because I am thinking, I am, in fact, real, right? So, because I'm thinking, there is something genuine, there's something real about me. So, this proof rightly elevated reason and cognition in that time, but as a result of all of this, um, the Enlightenment came in and there was a, a, a corresponding diminishment of anything physical, in a post-enlightenment world, as reason was elevated, external elements of faith diminished. Things like miracles, which can't be replicated, began to be questioned. So in the early 1800s, in the 1900s, it became very popular to see Jesus as a good man who taught helpful things about loving your neighbor, but it became very unpopular to believe that the Bible was the Word of God. So many churches began to say, well, Jesus' miracles didn't happen. He wasn't really born of a virgin. Uh, he wasn't really raised from the dead. What really matters isn't any of that. What really matters is that we do the things that Jesus did. Right? We live out his example. Now, I'm painting again with a very broad brush, but this was sort of the prevailing thinking of the liberal church. And what often happens when one church says one thing, the other side of the church says the exact opposite. They're saying, well, no, you're overly elevating one element of what Jesus did, but you're devaluing another, right? So we are going to preach the word of God. You're devaluing the word of God. So they elevated the preaching of the word. People needed to know that the Bible teaches because it's the word of God. So all of a sudden, you have this, um, this artificial rending apart of what in the church had never existed until that period the ministry of word and deed. Again, Jesus says, I was sent, or as I was sent, so I send you. Now, Jesus is the word made flesh, y'all. He is God's word that spoke all things into creation. He's God's word that commanded the seas to cease, and they did. He's the one who proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, and he's the one that ushered it in with his very actions. Word and deed. He proclaimed the word of God for all who needed to hear it, and he lived it out as well. May we at Advent do the same. May we faithfully preach all that the Bible has to teach us about God's redemption, and may we with our lives demonstrate what the kingdom of God is all about. May we be a people who deeply love our neighbor with our actions by telling them that the God who created them is offering a far better future than they could ever find in, their, in and of themselves. Our words and our deeds together testify that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom is coming. So he is our model. But also, 
Um, Jesus is our model because of, uh, of the incarnation. One of the great and beautiful mysteries that we believe as Christians is that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on flesh. Right? The infinite became, became finite by becoming incarnate. The creator became a creature. And this belief was anathema uh, to Greek theology where the spirit is what is right and what is beautiful and anything that's in this material world is disgusting and dirty. So how could you imagine a God who would dirty himself by becoming flesh? Well, in the incarnation, we see how much the Bible and God values the material world. He doesn't just value our souls because if he did, then he wouldn't have taken on our flesh. But he cares about all of you and all of me. So our model of ministry is also to care about the totality of creation and the totality of people. We want to see people healed physically as Jesus healed the sick and the blind. We want to see people restored to their communities as Jesus restored the demon-possessed man back to his community. We want to see people fed and nourished on clean water and daily bread, but also the water that quenches all thirst and the bread of heaven. We want for them to be nourished in their bodies and in their souls in relationship with Jesus. But the incarnation doesn't just testify to the goodness of the material world. It also becomes our model for ministry as well. It's far too easy for us in the church to kind of stand on the outskirts and, and to preach at people. It's far too easy for us to, to hand out good news tracts rather than to get involved in people's lives. Right? The sun didn't remain in heaven and throw truth bombs at us. No, he became one of us. He walked amongst us. He loved us. He healed us. He wept with us. And he preached with us or to us. So too is the calling of Advent. In the reflection quotes at the opening of your bulletin, John Stott, who's a, a famous English pastor, uh, was lecturing at an evangelical world conference mission, uh, mission conference, and he said this. He says, it, it surely is one of the most characteristic failures of us Christians, not least of us who are called evangelical Christians, that we seldom seem to take seriously this principle of the incarnation. It comes more natural to us to shout the gospel at people from a distance than to involve ourselves deeply in their lives, to think ourselves into their culture and their problems, and to feel with them in their pains. Y'all, may, may Advent be a place where we show up with people who are in pain, where we feel their pains and think their thoughts. We involve ourselves deeply in the others' lives, and when we incarnate the gospel more into their neighborhoods, may that be true of us as it is of Jesus. Um, our second point, our peace, and I promise these next two are way faster. Um, our peace. When I was in high school, <clears throat> I was at a Bible study, and one of uh, the leaders of the study asked, what is your, your greatest fear? And I don't exactly know why this was my greatest fear at that point in time, maybe because I hadn't really lived enough life um, uh, or encountered enough evil. But my answer was actually, maybe some of you all had this one as well at times, it was that I would do or say something that would turn people away from Jesus. And I'm not sure why I was that honest in that moment, um, but that was truly my greatest fear at that point in time. And that fear, or whatever your fear might be this evening, um, regarding the church or regarding Jesus, that can begin to paralyze us. 
Right? These fears, they cause us to want to go into hiding like we read about in the passage this evening in a locked door where the, like the disciples were doing. We begin to think, well, what if, I, what if I say the wrong thing to my neighbor who was just diagnosed with cancer? You know, it's better to hide behind the pleasantries uh, and just avoid the topic altogether. Or what if my atheist friend actually be, makes me begin to doubt uh, my relationship with God or that God actually exists? It's better, you know, to never bring up spiritual things with them lest I begin to doubt. Right? So in our fear, we begin to hide. In our fear, we struggle to go out into the world. But Jesus walks straight into his disciples' rooms and he says to them the word shalom. He says peace. Right now, now that statement is, it could very well be just him saying good evening to them, right? That's literally what that would mean in the Hebrew at the time. But there's something amazing happening here because he doesn't just say it once. He says it again in verse 21. He says, peace. He's speaking to a room full of disciples who are about to be sent out, but are all huddled in the room, scared to death. It is not an accident that he is telling them peace. He says to them, you have no need to fear. In light of what I've done on the cross, in light of my resurrection, and in light of my kingdom that's coming in which all things will be made right and be made good, there is nothing to fear anymore. Peace. One commentator uh, said that Jesus, now having put away uh, their sins, is now putting away their fears. So whoever you are this evening, allow for Jesus to put away your fears. Yes, Advent is a church with a mission, and oftentimes that mission will feel scary. We want to welcome terminally ill patients into our midst, and that means we've got to confront death. We want to build community with folks who are only in Houston for a very short time, at Rice or in med school or in residency, and that means we're going to have to get really good at saying goodbye and having those relationships torn back apart. Right, we're gonna, we want to walk into, into our neighbors, neighborhoods and, and to talk about Jesus, and that means having scary conversations. We're going to spur one another on to living the kingdom of God in our lives and in our workplaces and in our schools, and that means that we're going to risk being outsiders at times. Right, but Christ has dealt with sin. He's dealt with death. Now allow for him to deal with our fears as well. Because he says to all of us here, Peace, as we begin this work. You need not fear, trust in me. Peace. Third, let's look at our power. It's tempting when we use a lot of missional language, just like uh, those slogans I mentioned earlier. It's tempting to almost begin to like pump ourselves up, um, like a pregame pep talk. But though Jesus says, as I was sent, so I send you, he doesn't stop there. In all of the commissioning accounts, Jesus reminds his disciples that they don't go alone. Yes, they go with other Christians, but specifically they go with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the force from Star Wars. It's not some impersonal force. It is the third person of of, of the Trinity. And his function is to apply Jesus' work in the world. That is to say that the Holy Spirit makes ministry effective. So we don't go out into the world in our own power and produce amazing results for God. No, we're sent out to faithfully live and preach with the Holy Spirit's presence at work in our own lives so that others might taste, see, and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
But though high school Taylor would have been deeply afraid of turning people off to Christ, I hadn't, I hadn't properly recognized that, yes, I'm called to follow Christ as my motivation and my model, but it is the Holy Spirit, not me, who applies the work of the word and deed to the lives of others. So when you talk to someone about Jesus, you don't control their heart. Spirit does. You don't change anyone. God does. Certainly there are more and less God-honoring ways to do ministry, um, and I'd prefer we do more God-honoring ways. Um, but y'all, I've had enough conversations with folks in this church to know that there's some of us who came to know Jesus through some pretty uh, not God-honoring ways of ministry. My point being that the Spirit can make effective even those poor means by which ministry is accomplished. Because it's all done in the power of the Spirit. I don't really watch a lot of golf, but every now and then I watch the Masters. Um, I think there's something very calming uh, about listening to Jim Nance. Uh, so it's, a, it's great nap time material. Um, but one time while I was watching, it was actually this like amazing philosophical and theological moment that Jim Nance uh, uttered accidentally. He was talking about golfers who struggle, particularly with the mental aspect of the game, um, and particularly that the best golfers are those that do not try to control where the ball lands. Right? If you try to control where the ball lands, that's where you get into trouble. You focus too much and it gets into your mind. That what uh, the best golfers do is they control their swing. You see, there's too many external elements to control in golf. You can't control the wind. You can't control uh, the softness or the hardness of the ground. All you can do is focus on your swing and hope that the ball goes where it, where it goes. Now, little did the gymnasts know that he just gave like an unbelievable illustration for what it looks like to do work in light of God's providence and mercy. Yet that is what he did, right? My prayer for us at Advent is that we would we wouldn't worry about the outcomes, that we would just get up there and swing, swing faithfully and swing, that we'll faithfully and missionally love the medical center, Rice University, and these neighborhoods in word and in deed, that we wouldn't try to do anything miraculous and world-changing, but through kind of ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word, coming together in fellowship, bringing a loved one or a neighbor a meal, caring for the sick spurring one another on to God's grace, that that is what would begin the miraculous work of God's kingdom. And that we would trust for God to be at work changing our hearts and our lives. So who is Advent as I, as I close here? Well, at Advent, we want to be a church that missionally follows Jesus, that proclaims his good news in word and in deed, that we do so because he has saved us from our sin and from death, we do so because he is our peace, and we do so in light of the fact that he is our power. For when we do these things, God changes the world. Right? It's not in our sloganism. It's not in our missional uh, upbringing. But he is the one who brings his kingdom in light of all of these things. So may it be so. We all pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for what Jesus has come to do. And I pray, Lord, that as we begin... Um, this regular gathering of weekly worship with Advent, that you would mold us more and more as a church, church body into your likeness. Father, that we would be sent as Jesus was sent, 
not trying to do more than you've called us to do, recognizing that you are the one in control of all things. But may we, in light of that, have our fears taken away and have our faith placed more and more in you. I thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.